Our passage this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 18b to 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. We're continuing our series in the book of Philippians, and I want to start on a dark note. I want to start on a dark note. Um, Monday, I spent some time with a brother in Christ who's been coming to grace for a little bit. He's a, a veteran. Uh, soldier from Afghanistan who's acquired Gulf War syndrome. His organs are shutting down and, and just prayed with him as he said the doctors have given him about four months. And then later in the week, I received uh, a prayer request for the staff and it was an individual who this, this, this woman had shared that her husband uh, has cancer and, and, um, and he's been given less than a year. And then last week, I talked with a, a, a young lady who serves in the downtown church on the praise team, and her father has had part of a brain tumor removed, and it's inoperable, and everything is shutting down, and, and he has a short time yet to live. And then earlier in December, I'm texting back and forth with a good friend of mine, former teammate, couple, two or three guys that used to wrestle here together, and, and we're praying for a, a former teammate, Mark Ryland who wrestled in, in, uh, in the early 90s and late 80s. And he had COVID and seemed like things were doing better. And then I get a text and he's like, he's passed. And I, I, I preached his funeral just for, for Christmas. And Solomon says, a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. What is he talking about? I mean, I preached a funeral at Mark, his, de- his, his funeral, and is, is, he insi- is, is Solomon insinuating that I should tell his dad, Marv, and his, his mom, Marlis, that, you know, this day, the day you bury your son, is better than his five-year-old birthday party. Because that's, that's what he just said. In what way 
in what way is a person's death better than the day of their birth? Well, we're going to find out because Paul is going to help us understand what Solomon is driving at here. What Solomon is driving at. Here's the reality. Every single one of you, myself included, is living on borrowed time. And here's the reality in our civilization. Because we are the most prosperous, prosperous civilization in the history of the world, regardless of the state of our current economy, death is something we don't want to think about and we distract ourselves as if it's never going to happen. How do you live in such a way in which you are completely unafraid of the inevitable? Whether it's your death or your children's death or your spouse's death or just death in general. How do you live in such a way that you are unhindered by any fear so that you can love as Christ has loved you? Regardless of what it costs you in the end. That requires that we know who we are in Christ. Paul says in the passage it was read, this is the summary verse, the, the verse that links everything together, that, that helps us understand what in the world is Solomon talking about. He says, Paul says, for me to live is Christ, and to die, it's gain. So what we're going to see in this morning's passage, we're going to understand Paul's context. What's the historical context? What situation is he in which would lead him to say that statement to the church in Philippi, and then we're going we're gonna to segue into three things that are going to help us solidify how we can have that same fearlessness, that same hope. Three questions. Number one, how do I view my life? I know how Paul views it. He says, for me to live is Christ. How do I view my life? Secondly, how do I view my death? I know how Paul views it. He says, death is gain, but how do I view my, my impending death? And then thirdly, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do with the gospel? What am I going to do with the truth of God's word, which is being proclaimed from his word this morning? What am I going to do with it? How am I going to respond? Then and only then will you and I be able to face the future completely unafraid, unafraid of a loss of health, unafraid of a loss of income, unafraid of a loss of respect, an admiration from our peers, and unafraid of the loss of life, whether it's mine or my family members or people that are closest to me. Paul's going to show us how to do that. Father, we come to you and we are in humble dependence upon grace for our salvation, but also our sanctification, for us to even appropriate what Paul is saying. Lord, help us to believe. Overcome our unbelief. Give us faith. And Lord, help us to see the beauty of the gospel, that we might live without fear, that we might love without fear, that we might walk in the light of your grace and bear the fruit of the Spirit and bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first of all, let's, let's, let's get to the context. Let's understand Paul's situation. He says, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Just a quick pause. Last week, we learned that Paul is, in, at this moment, he's writing from prison. He knows the church in Philippi is stressed out, and they're distressed. They're worried about Paul. Paul could be executed any minute, and they're stressed out, and he's worried. He says, listen, 
last week we learned this. What's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And in that I rejoice. Next, next verse. Yes, and I will rejoice. I'm going to continue on rejoicing. Verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, Jesus Christ will turn out for my deliverance. He's saying, listen, he's saying to the church in Philippi, I know you people love me. I know you love me, and I love you, and you're praying for me. And because you're praying for me, and because I have the Spirit of Christ that dwells within me, the Spirit is going to use your prayers, and he's going to work out this for my good and my deliverance. Now, the question is, what does he mean by deliverance? That word deliverance, it means salvation. Is Paul speaking about his temporal deliverance from prison or is Paul speaking about a broader context of salvation? I'm not exactly sure, but if we keep reading, it leads me to believe that he's not sure, he's not certain that God's going to deliver him from prison. What's he say next? He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. I will not be ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. So Paul is holding out that death is a real possibility. And even through that, his deliverance will come. Even through that, his deliverance will come. So let's, let's keep reading here. Verse 21. And then this statement, which, which is what we're going to focus on the rest of the sermon, for me... For me, to live is Christ. This is the definition of what it means to live for Paul. For me, the purpose for my existence is my union with Christ. That's it. Nothing else. And therefore, death is gain. Death is gain. Verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, if I'm to go on, if I'm going to continue, if I'm going to get out of prison, I'm going to live my life in my body. Well, that means fruitful labor for me. I'm going to bear fruit. Yet, which shall I choose? I can't tell. Look at verse 23. This is fascinating. Verse 23. He says, I'm hard pressed. I'm hard pressed between the two. I'm hard pressed between the two. He says, my desire, my desire, if I could have my first choice, I'd exit this world. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that's far better. But, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Who says that? Who says, you know what I want? If I could get first choice, would be be executed tomorrow. Because then I'd be in the presence of Christ. But I also know that it's necessary, it's necessary to remain in the flesh for your benefit. I'm ready to go home. Paul said, I'm ready to go home. I've run this race. I am ready to cross the finish line and be with Jesus. And that's what I prefer. But my race might go on and on and on. Not for my sake, but for yours and for the good of others and for the glory of God. Convinced of this, I know that I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul is holding out hope that although he may be executed, he's holding out hope that he won't be, not for his benefit, because for his benefit he'd just as soon be executed, but for theirs. But for theirs. Paul is utterly fearless. He's utter, he. 
He, that's why he's able to write Philippians and, and repeat eight different times, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice in every circumstance, including your impending death. This is the only way, the only way that what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 makes any cognitive sense is if you understand the end game. You understand the end game. So let's, let's break it down. Let's make the application here. How do I view my life? For Paul, he says, for me, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. In Galatians chapter 20, verse 2, Paul writes to the church in, in Galatia. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, I've been united with him in his death. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But, but the life that I live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is saying here is the purpose of my existence is to be unified with Christ and to bring him glory. He says elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it in the name of God for his glory. In other words, whether Paul is drinking, whether Paul is eating, whether Paul is sleeping, whether or not he's, he's, he's engaged in a leisure activity or he's making tents for, for sale so he can fund his ministry, everything that Paul does 24-7 all the time is done for Christ is done for Christ. He can truly say everything, every motive, every intention, everything that I do, everything is done for him. Commentator by the name of Hawthorne says that everything that Paul does, trusts, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on, is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ in Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to his existence. So that's what it means for Paul to, when he says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Now, here's the question. You fill in the blank. For me, for you, to live is what? What drives you? That's what you, what do you live for? That, that's, that's the question here. What consumes your, 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 your mental space? What are you running after in, in your mind that you think to yourself, if I could just get this, then my life would have meaning and I would be truly happy. What do you lack right now that if you could just get more of it, maybe you have a little, but maybe you could get more of it that then you think my life would be, I would be on a firm foundation. I I could be happy. I could have peace. I could have joy. Or what do you currently possess that you, you wrestle with anxiety because you're afraid that you, it's slipping away. You can, it's, it's, it's just being pulled from you and you can't hold on to it. What is it? For some of you, you're not followers of Christ. So for you, there is something in that blank, and it's not Jesus. It could be for you to live is the acquisition of wealth 
or to live is the acquisition, acquisition of, of personal relationships, sexual and otherwise. For, for some of you, to live is family. For, for some of you, to live is your career. For some of you, to live is just to be accepted and, and, and loved by someone else, maybe a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a child. And by the way, none of the things that I've mentioned are inherently sinful. These are, these are gifts that God gives, uh, gives human beings, whether they're followers of Christ or not. He says, here, here, multiply, flourish. These are the gifts of what it means to be human. And if, those, if you're not in Christ, you're living for something. You're living for something. Now, for many of you, for many of you, you like Andrew in the baptism here, You've trusted Jesus. You've placed your faith in him. So Jesus is, is covered your sins and you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And for you, but if you search your heart and you're honest, for many of us, at least at times, we would say, for me to live is Jesus and something else. What is the something else? In other words, yeah, Jesus is important, but you know, my family God, family, country, whatever, you know, the, this, you know, all, what are these, pri- what is it? What's the other for me to live as Christ and my occupation for me to live as Christ and my family. What, what are, if that's the case, and by the way, please don't hear me say that family doesn't matter, but you are away, aware that Jesus said multiple times, I tell you the truth, unless you hate your mother, your brother, your father, your wife, your children, you, you can't be my disciple. <laughs> what? what? What is he saying? So I'm supposed to go home and tell my wife, Stace, I was reading the scripture this morning. I'm supposed to hate you. Punch her in the face. What, what, is, what is that? Is that, is that the... No, here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, I have to be alone in the blank. Your love for your spouse, your love for your children, your love for your job, your love for approval, your love for anything else, all of these things could be good. Your love for me and anything else, by comparison, must seem as hate. Because if it's not, you won't actually be able to love those people. That sounds like a paradox, but it's true. Here's the deal. I can't love you. I can't love my spouse unless Jesus is the only thing in the blank. If I put my spouse in the blank with Jesus, for me to live is Jesus and Stacy, I will, I will invariably put Stacy above Jesus and I won't love her well. Or I'll be filled with anger. For me to live is Christ plus being strong and healthy. Well, that's gone. The year 2021, for me, became the year that I realized I'm a decrepit, old, aging man. And it's not going to get better. I used to think, for me to live, oh, yes, I love Jesus, but I really love to be active. I love to be physical. I love to go outdoors. I still love those things. But if, those, if I have to have those in order to have joy, well, then I can't have joy because I'm going to lose all those things. So don't hear me say family's bad, good health is bad. No, those things are beautiful. But if they occupy the blank with Jesus, we really won't be able to love well. 
Are you living for something that death can steal? So what did you put in the blank other than Jesus? I hate to rain on your parade, but you're going to lose it. If it's health, you'll eventually lose it. If it's the love of your children, you're going to die or they will. One of you is going first. Some of you are like, you are so dark. I'm just being truthful. This is what Solomon is talking about. The day of death is better than the day of birth. He's, he's shocking us into reality. You're going to die. These people that you love, they're not going to be with you in 30 years. Not all of them. So grab a hold of that right now so you can live. So that you can live. That's what he's saying. Anything that I am setting my eyes upon that I could lose, that death can steal from me, I'm going to lose. And so are you. And so are you. So how do we get to the place? How do we get... How did Paul get to the place where he could actually say that in in any form of sincerity? That wasn't always true for Paul. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. The second chapter in the book of Ephesians, he he tells them and he tells us, he says, listen, verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What what is he saying? He's saying, listen, every single one of us, when we were born, we were born in this world, we have a sinful disposition. That doesn't mean we were as evil as we could be. It just means that we put something else in the blank. And and, and God doesn't, we're dead to it, we're dead in sin, we're dead to God. He's not the priority. We want God like a, like a criminal wants a judge. We just, we don't, we're not drawn near to him. We have no affection for him. We have affection for ourselves. We have affection for others, but not affection towards Christ. And he says, that's, that's all of us. All of us used to live that way, including the Apostle Paul. In Paul's early days, for him to live was to be obedient to the law and have a righteousness of his own through his obedience. In other words, to live is accomplishment, spiritual accomplishment. Christ, he, Christ was an enemy to Paul. But take a look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He says, it's by grace that you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. It became true for Paul that to live is Christ when he met Christ when he realized that his pursuit was dishonoring God and that Christ, by grace through faith, had given him forgiveness and imputed to him his very own righteousness, which became Paul's righteousness. For Paul, that was the moment where Christ entered into the blank. For Paul, for to live is Christ. That was the moment. And that's a progressive thing as well. 
Because for many of you, you can say, for me to live is Christ, but if I'm honest, it's also my family or my job or something else. Something good, something good. Or for some of you, something which is harmful. But yeah, I love Jesus, but I also love this. And as you grow in grace, your affection for Christ grows to the point where Paul can say with all sincerity, everything else is shoved out. It's not that I don't love you people in Philippi. It's not that I don't love my friends. It's not that I don't love a good steak. It's not that I don't enjoy or love certain activities. But those, those are secondary. I love the giver of the gifts more than anything else, more than the gifts themselves. And if we're loving something that death can steal, then we can't bear fruit. So that's how we view life. For Paul to live is Christ. Now, let's take a look at what he says about death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you sincerely look forward to your homecoming? For some of you, the answer is yes. Last week, after I got done preaching, after the first service, I talked to a brother in Christ who doesn't live here in Iowa. He lives in Ohio, but his daughter and his son-in-law attend here. And back in 2018, on July 5th, they were all coming from Ohio to Iowa City because his daughter uh, was getting engaged to his future son-in-law. And the whole family, his mom, his dad, and... and, uh, and his daughter's twin brother, Eli, they're all en route. And then his son, Eli, his car flipped and he was, he was killed. And I was talking to Todd, that's his name. He says, you know, there's not a day that goes by. My mind is always, I, 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 I'm, I'm, a part of me was taken away. And I hurt so badly that if I didn't have Christ, if I didn't have Christ, I would, I would utterly despair. All I think about, all I think about is going home to be with Jesus. And he said, and I quote, and sometimes I think I'm so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard that, that you could, a person, you're, you're, if you're so heavenly, if you're so focused on Jesus and you're so focused on, on the next life that you might become no good to people around you? Have you ever heard Christians say that? What do they mean? Is that, is that true? Is it possible to be so, so heavenly minded that you're, you're of no good to the people around you? If it's not true, why is it a common saying? C.S. Lewis addressed that in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. I think that's what people think when they think you're so heavenly minded that you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly. In other words, they're just, they're not thinking about this life. They're disengaged. It's a form of escapism. And anyway, Lewis is saying, that's not what we're talking about. It's not a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, he doesn't mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world 
were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim in heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you will get neither. That is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Look at what Paul says here. Look at what he says to the church in Philippi. He says... If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, uh, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to be departed, to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. So, catch this. Paul is heavenly-minded. He desires to depart from this world so that he can be in the presence of Christ. That's what he wants. But because that's what he wants, he submits himself to the will of God so that he can benefit other people. Because he's not afraid of losing what life has given him because he can't lose it in Christ, he's free to love. And it doesn't matter what he loses. He can freely love. Do you know That's the secret. Do you know why it's so hard to love people? It's because we're afraid we're going to lose something. You know why it's hard to be vulnerable with people? Because we're afraid we're going to get hurt. You know why it's so hard to invest in people and build relationships? Because it takes time. It takes money. It takes, it takes, uh, it takes sacrifice. All things that we're going to, we're going to lose. We're going to lose. They're going to fall out of our hands and I won't be able to get it back. Fear is what hinders me from loving people, including those who are closest to me. And Paul is saying, I'm not afraid anymore for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. So I prefer to be with Jesus, but in the event that I'm not going to be with him, I can pour everything into you for your good and his glory. I'm not afraid either way. I'm not afraid either way. And someday Paul's longing will will be our reality. It is his reality. He went to be with the Lord thousands of years ago. They cut his head off eventually. He did get out of prison from in this context, but eventually he went right back in and then he was never released. He was beheaded and he went into the presence of the Lord. And here's the thing. Someday I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord and someday you are going to be in the presence of the Lord. Or you'll be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the two. But every single one of us is created for eternity. And everything that we are holding on to now will be, our cold dead hands won't be able to hold on to anymore when we come into the presence of God. But, but John describes that. John describes what it looks like to come into the presence of God. In 1 John 
chapter 3. I'm going to read you the first verse, which is not on the PowerPoint. Here's what John says. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us, it is it doesn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children. We are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. Here's what John is saying. Listen, behold the manner of love that God has for you. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. God becomes flesh and dwells among us. He lives a perfect, sinless life. He was given friends. He, was, he experienced all as human beings that we experience. He entered into humanity fully, yet without sin. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. In other words, what he said to his father is, for me to live is your glory. And I'm handing my life over to you. Why? Why? Why did Jesus forfeit his life? For your redemption. For your love. Jesus Christ sees you as a treasure, as a great pearl, a great price. And he says the kingdom of God is like a merchant who sells everything he has so that he might acquire that pearl of great price. Do you know that Jesus looks at you and sees a valued treasure? Do you know that? You say, but Brooks, I'm a sinner. I'm vile. Oh, yeah, so am I in my flesh. That doesn't remove the fact that God places great value and worth upon your soul. And it's because he has great value and worth upon your soul, which is intrinsic to who you are as a human. That's why he pours out his love on you, takes your sin, bears your sin, and gives you his righteousness and adopts you as a son and daughter. Behold that love. And here's the thing. We are only seeing just a smidgen of that kind of love. There's going to be a day when we, when you and I are going to be face to face with him and we're going to behold him as he is, and we're going to be awash in that love in his presence. And we're going to wonder how anything else in our lives today ever competed for that. Everything that you will lose in this life, you will receive back a thousandfold when you're face to face with Christ. Do you remember the, the, the story of the rich young ruler? Jesus told him, one thing you lack, sell everything and then come follow me. And what did he do? He went away sad. And then Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's hard, harder for the, the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Than, it'd be easier for a camel to pass through an eye of, the, uh, of a needle. And, and the, the disciples like, well, well, who could be saved then? And then Jesus said, well, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Peter dropped this. He goes, well, you know what? We've left our families, homes, and businesses to follow you. And what did Jesus say? I tell you the truth. Those of you who have left all of that behind 
will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. Do you know what Jesus is saying? If you take Jesus and you put him in the blank and then you're not afraid to lose anything else, everything else that you take out of the blank, he'll give you back in this life or the next. You, you can't lose. No, scratch that. You will lose everything, but then you receive it all back in Christ. And everyone who thus hopes in him, that is Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, what John is saying is that knowledge of what you will have in Christ when, you receive, when you're face-to-face with him, that is the only power, that's, that's the only way we can love. The only way that I can love sacrificially is if I'm no longer afraid to lose my life, my health, my finances, my time, my pleasures. That's what it means when Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Paul's longing will someday be our reality. So as we close, what do I do next? What do you do next? What do we do? Well, it starts with believing. It starts with entering into a relationship with Christ by grace. Here's what the gospel isn't. You know what? You need to stop being an idiot and start being awesome. And then you can show God how awesome you are. And then you can be, that is, that's nonsense. Here's the gospel. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but here's the deal. God so loved us that he gave himself for us and that we enter into that relationship by grace through faith. In other words, it's a gift. Receive it. Receive his pardon. Receive his righteousness. Receive his presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then be baptized. Baptism shows that it's like a wedding ceremony. I put this, this ring was put on my finger June 3rd, 1989, as I entered into a covenant relationship with my wife. That marriage ceremony didn't cause us to love one another, but it told my mom, my dad, and all my friends and the church that I'm committed to this woman and she's committed to me. Baptism is the same and it declares to the body of Christ, I'm one with him. I'm one with him. So if that's your desire, make that decision and begin to follow him. And then, and then, and then as a follower of Christ, set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on Christ. What's that about? It's about the reality that for most of us, that it is for me to live as Jesus plus a million other things. Now, we are to set, Paul says, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's our spiritual act of worship. And to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Then we will, be, we will know and accept God's will as good, perfect, and pleasing will. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The renewing of our minds is the process by which we take a look at that blank. For me, for Brooks, to live is, well, yeah, Jesus, but what other things am I living for which cause me anxiety because I can't get them or I'm afraid to lose? That's the process of taking every thought captive. That's the process of getting into the word. That's the process of getting to know this savior who loves me so much and loves you so much that we begin to love him that much more. And as our affection grows for him, 
and our, our love for him grows, our love for him begins to eclipse the love that we have for lesser things. And ironically, it enables us to love those things, people, more in a way that honors Christ. So set your minds on Christ. And then talk to him. Ask him, okay, Lord, I've set my mind on you. What, what would you have me do right now today? And then whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do, just do it. I was praying this morning. Got up super early, about four, and I looked over my sermon and drank a gallon and a half of coffee, and it's seven o'clock, and I'm still sitting in the office there, and I'm just like, oh, what should I pray? I just start praying for, for the pastors locally around here, some guys that I knew. And I, I texted about five of them, said, hey, I'm just praying that God would use you this morning, strengthen you this morning, and bring glory to himself through the preaching of the word to your congregation. And one of them texts me back. He says, You're, the timing is just of the Lord. I woke up at three with body aches and I feel like garbage and I couldn't sleep. And so I was up and I was praying and I told my son who woke up, I said, pray for me. And then I got your text. Do you know how many times God has put it on my heart to pray for someone or do something or write them a note? And I say, yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. And then never do it. Am I the only guy or gal that, that hears a prompt from the Lord, but doesn't act on it. You see, here's the deal. When I'm, I'm no longer afraid to lose five minutes of time before I'm ready to preach and invest in someone else. And for me to live as Christ, I'm blessed and other people are blessed. It's the only way I can learn to love. And I have to learn to love because I'm not very good at it. Maybe you are, but I'm not. So ask, Lord, how do I love others? How do I love others? I want to encourage you to jump on board with the, the reading plan. This, this will help in the, in the asking the Lord, how do I bless others? It'll also help in the uh, setting our minds on the things of Christ. So reading plan, we're, we're reading through the Psalms together. together. You can join that to, by texting Psalms to the number 94253. As we seek to take Christ and make him the sole occupier of that blank, for me to live is Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for the gift of eternal life and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you love us with a love that we fully don't comprehend. And I pray, Spirit, that you would open our minds and you would open our hearts to begin to grasp and understand how deep, how wide, how inexhaustible your love is for us. I pray for that person or persons here this morning who is hesitant to trust you. Maybe they've been wounded by people in the church. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see that you are a good father. Uh, you are a good father and you are a loving savior and you would draw them to yourself. Give them the gift of faith. And Lord, for those of us who are following you, would you strengthen that faith? Help, her to, help us to overcome our doubts, overcome our unbelief, and, and to love you in a way, Lord, that helps us to love others. For your glory and our good, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.